Randy Weingarten, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. Tell us a little bit about your job day to day. So my job day to day is like a firefighter. Um, you want to spend the time uh, really thinking about policy and how you scale up good policy so you help kids around the country and you help teachers help kids and you help nurses have um, have um, better um, circumstances. I represent 1.7 million people, most of whom spend their lives making a difference in the lives of others, be them teachers and bus drivers and nurses and other public servants. But when I say my job is like a firefighter is because of the division and contentiousness in the country right now, um, there is a real zeal um, by extremists to try to undermine every institution that is attempting to help people do better. So I'm in the business of bettering the lives of people and I'm fighting a lot of um, entities that wanna undermine that. Who are those entities? So, you know, I, I hesitate when I try to put them all in one bucket, but it, you know, it used to be that schools, um, the, that, that people across the political spectrum really believed in schooling. There are always issues about whether or not um, schools were doing everything they were supposed to do for all and issues about equity and funding and things like that. But now what's happened is the Betsy DeVos crew um, led or, um, uh, or in conjunction with other very, very wealthy families and their foundations um, the Uline, the Bradley, the Arnold, um, a lot of the, you know, descendants of Milton Friedman, but they've done something different. They actually believe now in destroying public schools. Christopher Rufo, for example, one of their chief orchestrators, has said that to get to universal school choice, you have to get to universal public school distrust. So you take that group of people and then you add to it the political ambitious, the Trumps, the Bannons, the, um, the DeSantis's. And so they have taken what used to be political sport and, you know, and, and how you create contrast and they've taken it to a new level to create destruction and um, chaos, um, and they don't care who they hurt. So, so, and the last thing is, you know, there's been, because of the economic issues, there's always been a struggle between the working class and, you know, the power elite. But I put that one aside for a second. I, the, these culture wars around education and, and, and the fear of education and the fear of pluralism. In America, there used to at least be a big fight about the economics. You know, do we have um, more unions who have greater power to, you know, to, to improve wages versus, you know, trickle down economics? So do you have, you know, top down versus 
bottom up than middle out. That's That's been a fight in America for ages. And you and I have been on different sides of that fight many times. But now the fight is also about the democracy, about pluralism, and about education. And that's what has made it different. If you if you go back to the beginning of the public education system in America, uh, the its purpose was always framed as necessary not to produce a nation of great scholars, but great citizens. Yes, right? exactly. The purpose right. of public education was to create citizens. Yep, exactly. And so. Here we are in the third decade of the 21st century. The The purpose of education in 21st century America, as it stands today, is what? And and what should it be? So, you know, I, I'm, I gave a speech um, on March 28th, and I quoted three of our great leaders in America. And I just, you know, because they do anchor and bookmark what the purposes are. So they said, take Jefferson, who said that general education was necessary, and I quote him, to enable every man to judge for himself what will secure or endanger his freedom. Roosevelt said the real safeguard of democracy is education. And King said education is the road to equality and citizenship. So if you look at not only our founders, but um, people like Montesquieu, Locke, other um, of, the, of, of the philosophers of our world, of our life, of our generations, what education um, was the cornerstone of is democracy equality, opportunity, freedom. And, and, and it was there, whether you believed in um, um, entrepreneurship or you believed in things like Medicare and social security, it created the tools that kids need. And so I would say that today, what education should be is it is a way to prepare our children for their lives, for career, for college, and for citizenship. Those are the four biggies that we're supposed to do. And, and, and in an age of AI, chat GPT, not just in an age of, of disinformation, I'll get to that in a second, in an age where, the, where, where machines are gonna be able to do basic functions that people had done for years. And I'm not just talking about the assembly line. I'm talking about basic, you know, functions like writing a paragraph, what the calculator did in terms of mathematics. The thinking and applying knowledge, building relationships, empathy, all of these skills are probably the most important skills that we can be teaching kids. You know, that's what we should be doing. And then what ends up happening, Steve, is that on the other side, when you are trying to take away social emotional learning, when you're book banning, when you are bullying the vulnerable children, when you're not allowing teachers 
to actually teach answer questions of kids, teach history, which is about context. That's when you see that these extremists, you know, some people call them MAGA Republicans, but these extremists are fearful of the very thing we need to do to ensure we have a future in this country. When you think about the curriculum for a high school student, right. I was talking to my stepdaughter. We walked by an old bookstore and in the front row was Death Be, Be Not Proud, which I recall reading in, in eighth grade and talked about all of the books that had read in high school from the Odyssey, Shakespeare, and very, very few were part of the curriculum today. Mm -hmm. Does does Mark Twain have a place in in 2020s America yes. as a staple of of the curriculum because of the language in the book? which is a reflection of that moment in America in which it was written, where those words, particularly the N-word, were used. So look, I believe, so let me, let me say what my personal opinion is, and then let me also tell you the process about how books are selected these days. I mean, as you were talking about that, I was thinking Catcher in the Rye. Um, I taught... You know, I taught AP, uh, Gov, and social studies. I used to use To Kill a Mockingbird as a way of teaching about um, racism in, in law um, because you could see the way in which, you know, a jury um, dealt um, in in the South at that moment in time, and you could see what what you know what it meant. But I do believe that Mark Twain has a role. I believe that um, that the book To Kill a Mockingbird has a role. I think that Toni Morrison has a role. I do not understand both this banning. I shouldn't say I don't understand it. I don't believe that this banning of books or this um, uh, or, or because there is one word that is noxious and horrible, which we should never be using, um, you know, is a rationale for banning an entire book. The culture, we, we have to teach culture and context. And we can actually hold in one hand and say, using the N-word is... Um, and 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 also have an understanding of what Twain was doing then, and and be critical of it. Um, if you know, as as out with the bathwater, and so in the way in which this actually gets done now in school systems and in states is there's curriculum committees. And those curriculum committees include experts, they include parents, they include teachers, and they go through this on a state level in, in K-12 to create curriculum and suggested reading. The difference between that 
in a classroom and then what's in the library is that if you ban a book from the library, what you're saying is that no parent and no student has the opportunity to read it. So you in, in, in the banning is actually taking freedom to read and freedom to learn away from others. When, when you think about book banning in the United States in, in 2023, 2022, and go back to the beginning of your career, teaching AP English. <laughs> are, are you shocked that we've arrived at a moment where across the country, that's actually happening in this country? Yes, I am shocked. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not naive and I've, I, can, I can see it, understand it, explain it. But I went back and it was AP social studies. I went back to my curriculum this summer. I kind of dusted off all my old binders because of course, my curriculum is not on, my lesson plans are not on, um, are not saved in files in a computer somewhere. They are, or they are saved or in the iCloud, they are saved in paper in binders. So I started flipping through my old lesson plans and literally 50% of what I taught in AP political science, AP gov, including the We the People competition that we had our kids in Brooklyn, New York, compete with kids all over the country. 50% of them couldn't, couldn't be taught anymore in Florida. And that's from 20 years ago. So, you know, I'm, I'm in the work of making life better for people. That's my work. That's what the labor movement does. That's what educators do. So I believe in King's quote, that the arc of the moral universe does bend towards justice. I, I've seen it in my own life. I was a closeted gay person, lesbian in the seventies. I can get married now. I've seen that. I've seen that arc bend towards justice and towards equality and towards opportunity. But we're, we have this huge backlash and huge step backwards now. And on education, it is the fact that the battleground is education um, is really devastating, particularly for kids who do not have means. Kids who have means are gonna be able to walk through the world. But if we are not teaching kids how to think or conflict resolution or using schools to promote and prompt an intrigue and, and or or creativity and, and 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 ingenuity, then what are we doing to this generation of kids? We're creating fear instead of hope. And and so it is really I find that the having the battlefield be education is really nefarious. What is the central idea that you think the people who are trying to restrict what a kid can read are trying to shield them from? What are they trying to hide from them? Empathy, understanding, bridging differences. And this is why I believe that. After um, George Floyd 
um, was murdered. In the aftermath of that, the rallies, the um, the um, marches, the um, the demonstrations, they were multiracial and they were multi-generational. And you saw a backlash to that being banning books in schools, banning books. I mean, how do you ban a book about- Do you see Rudy a connection Bridges? between those two things? Yeah, you ban, because I the banning of books, the attack on CRT, all of that started after um, Floyd's murder. You just saw this connection and, and you heard the argument you were hearing was, well, we don't want our kids to be uncomfortable. Well, which kids are you talking about? There's lots of kids who have been uncomfortable over the course of their lives. Like, so which kids are you talking about? And what is it that would make somebody uncomfortable talking about race? Well, we don't want our kids to be blamed for slavery. Well, your kids are not blamed for slavery, but we have to talk about slavery and the effects of slavery. We have to talk about what happened to Floyd. Some some kids that that parents talk about this to kids to black sons all the time. So that and then we were seeing when I say when I focus on books like Roberto Clemente, Ruby Bridges, Anne Frank. What we were seeing was, why would you ban a book about Anne Frank? Why would you ban a book about Ruby Bridges in elementary school? These books help kids understand other kids. These kids help kids bridge differences, have empathy for others in, those, in that situation. The Roberto Clemente book that was banned, there was a line in there that talked about the discrimination he felt and that was the rationale why it was initially banned in Duval County. So I has think a Florida, that- was, Has a Florida teacher been arrested under this law yet? Um, the, there, no, there have been Florida teachers who have been fired under these laws. And because of the heat that DeSantis took, he now is saying that there is no book bans but what we saw, what, what the point of the law, Steve, is to create a chill and intimidation. That's as much the point of the law as it is the actual um, um, uh, criminalization um, and effect of that criminalization. And should a, should a Florida teacher decide to be the person who tests this, to, to stand up? Does the union support them 100% all the yeah. way to the yeah. to the end. Yeah. In fact, what we did is we expanded our legal defense fund and to tell to tell our members that we have their back um, in these cases. And in fact, what we I just did in my March 28th speech is create a freedom to learn and freedom to teach hotline because a lot of parents and teachers you know, are out there in the country feeling very alone. And so we wanted to make sure they had a place to go to, um, uh, to you know, if, if, they're, if they're feeling this alone, the, the anxiety, the 
intimidation, the bullying is real around the country. And as you know, better than I do, apathy um, is the, you know, and an a sense of isolation and apathy is the tool of the autocrat. I want to talk about what you would say to a young person thinking about becoming a teacher in a few minutes. But, but before we get there, what do you say to the teachers in their 20s, in their 30s, who are becoming part of the union movement, becoming, uh, you know, stepping up onto those first rungs of union leadership? And what do you say to them about the temperament that's required to do your job, I, which I could not do because it would it would put me across the table from people on on three issues that that would that would really quickly reach my snapping point, which is one, knowing that you're looking across you know at somebody who doesn't want to feed a hungry kid in the in the morning so that they can that they can learn at a at a relatively low low cost against what society's going to pay for that kid over the over the balance of the 80 years of their of their life or so um from the state number two uh that the threat is reading mark twain or maya angelou uh right. and three a total indifference that at any moment on any day, uh, the security cameras can pick up death coming through the front door of any school in America carrying an AR-15. And that's right. that's who you're sitting across the table from. You're sitting right. across the table from the guy who released the picture of his family with their AR-15s on their Christmas card. Uh, you're sitting across from another guy who did that and another guy who did that. You know, you have four people sitting across the table from you who who release Christmas cards fetishizing the weapons that are killing your teachers, that are killing killing students. Talk to me about the temperament mm -hmm. um, that is required to stay calm and steady and persistent uh, in that context. So... You know, I've actually been asked this question a lot of late, um, which has been curious to me and interesting to me. If you are a teacher, let me let me let me just start as a teacher, and then also answer your question about um, if you want me to about who teachers are and how you know. And it's amazing that we still have most of them. I mean, we are moving from three hundred thousand teachers used to quit every year out of a base of about 3.6 million. It's now looking more and more like 400,000 teachers are quitting every year. And the pipeline has really collapsed because you know teacher satisfaction has gone from about 66% in 2008 to about 12% in 2022. And, and the stat that I really love is that parents love their kids' teachers, but do, they do not want their kids to become teachers. And because they get it, they get what's going on. There, there's two things that you know intuitively. Number one is you have to meet kids where they are and you have to meet their needs where they are. And number two, it's not what's said, it's what's heard. And so if you're not trying to 
take all the cues that you're seeing in terms of children and, and really trying to create a safe, welcoming environment in your classroom, kids are going to feel disaffected. They're going to feel disconnected. I'm not saying that you don't push kids. I used to push kids really hard. But you have to create an environment that is conducive to learning. And, and that's what teachers learn. That is the secret sauce of teachers. It's part of why kids trust them. It's part of why kids' parents trust them, because that's what you have to do. And so, you know, teachers who become union activists, paras, bus drivers who become union activists, that's part of an ingrained skill that you have, that's, that's part of a skill and a value that you have to learn. Um, because, because you're not going to, you know, you, you, you're not gonna move a classroom. You're not gonna help kids learn unless you have that kind of patience and unless you try to meet them where they are. And so that's a skill that I've learned. And the other skill, is I started as a negotiator. I've negotiated contracts my you know whole adult life. And so if you're a negotiator as opposed to a litigator, and you know, negotiators are fighters too. I'm not saying you don't you you have to figure out how you um, get to win-win situations. So you'll have to understand where the other side is and how to move it. The problem is right now, and this is where the anger is, is that the the other side just doesn't care. It doesn't care. It doesn't care about the kids or, or certainly the kids we teach in America. You don't start saying that the way in which you deal with getting what you want, like Rufo said, universal vouchers, you don't start by saying, oh, we're gonna create distrust. Trust is what you need in schools. Trust is what you need in a democracy. Trust is what you need for pluralism. So the fact that they could be that out there saying, I don't care if we decimate society in order to get what I want, that's the anger that you hear from me because that's not a level playing field. That's, that's basically saying they'll give up on this generation of children to get what they want. When you look at this generation's political leaders, do, do you think that anyone is stepping up to meet this moment and to tackle the threat that you're describing the way that it needs to be tackled and the way that it needs to be described, right? That this issue has been brought into the into the proper focus mm -hmm. about about where we stand. I my my view is we are at a at a very 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 critical juncture in the in the country uh that people are very deeply upset and aggrieved. 40% of the country doesn't have $400 of cash available. Uh yeah. they are legitimately looking around at a at a system that is structurally and systemically unfair on a lot of different fronts from from banking from an ability to uh find opportunities so on and so forth and it's opening the door 
uh, to a to a faith in extremism. That's mm-hmm. that's, that's what's right. that's what's happening. And and so do when you evaluate that, um, what 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 do you, what do you say? Um, what what do you say to people who are who are being fed a steady diet of anger and lies? And and obviously the very potent one is that they're coming for your kids. This is a generation they don't um, have one or two leaders that are leading. You know, for example, a Maxwell Frost, just who was part of March for Our Lives, just won the seat that Val Demings had in um, in in the House of Representatives, and he is um, doing. Um, you know, he, he, he's out there, you know, um, in the house in a very eloquent way, um, talking about these issues. Hakeem Jeffries is a very different kind of leader than Nancy Pelosi. I thought his, the way in which he accepted that leadership with rhyme in the house floor, um, was, um, was just brilliant. Um, uh, Jamal Bowman, um, who is a principal in the New York City school system, was a teacher in New York City when I was the union president in New York City. You know, I thought it took a lot of courage for him to, I mean, he was really after Nashville, really angry. And Massey, and he said, you've never taught in a school. You don't know what it means when you are so cavalier about guns. And so, you know, here's three you know, there's 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 three people who I'm now watching in the, you know, in the in the House of Representatives. But when but look at Gretchen Whitmer. Look at what she is accomplishing in in um, in in Michigan. But all of these people, I just talked about um, people in elected office. What we have lost is where's civil society. Where are the, you know, the Reverend Barber, civil society, the um, the taking on of poverty, King, the taking on of not only poverty, but of civil rights. So I, I think that part of what we need to do and, and do it across ideological lines, which is what Barber has tried to do, is how do we um, have a reinvigoration, a revival of civic society, faith, community, civic leaders coming together. Um, and, and I think we need to do it across ideological lines because this- How do you begin uh, that? And who so, begins that? <laughs> so let me And take, why did it collapse? <laughs> um. Those are all really great questions. Number one, I think that our politics have gotten too expensive. The economic issues in the country, starting with um, the moving of good jobs, first from the north to the uh, moving of good jobs, closing down of factories um, in the north, um, calling the middle of the country the Rust Belt, First, the moving of those jobs to the South and then overseas became fertile ground for divisiveness and for a fight about the future. Um, I think that those two things 
um, created were, uh, were very, very potent. Globalization, technology, all of that was very potent. I think what then happened was the new, you know, gazillionaires. I mean, we had gazillionaires in the Gilded Age, and then they started. We've. I want to. I want to. I want to go down this route. We we've yeah. always had gazillionaires. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's we we've always had them in America. We were the we were the richest place on earth by the by the by the time of the American Revolution, but we we've always had them. But but in this era, it's different because. Well, I think it's different because of social media. I think it's also different because of. I mean, let's let's not pretend that the good old days were the good old days. I mean, there's been lots of strife in this country in different ways. But what I think the difference right now is that, and I wouldn't just say the two political parties, there's, you know, de Tocqueville also saw in America this, this kind of um, interesting complexity between a sense of a social contract, a Lockean social contract, and individualism. Um, unity and diversity. So it's not as if this is a new strain in America. I think the difference is, with the exception, with, 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 we went up to the brink in terms of the Civil War, and we saw the um, basically fraying of the country over the Civil War. And we are again in that precipice on the issues of democracy and pluralism. And I think that, you know, so we've always had the issue in the economy, but we're on that precipice again in terms of the democracy. And I think what has happened in terms of social media is that it is fertile ground for disinformation. This issue about trust, there used to be a trust in the democracy whether you were as rock ridge a Republican as you are, Steve, or were, or as, you know, as democratic as I was, we believed in the democracy. Um, and I think that there's that fraying. It's, it's one of the reasons why when you look at a DeSantis and uh, others, you know, paying obeisance to Orban or to what's going on in Poland, that's the fray that we had not had um, since, frankly, before World War II. World War One and World War II created, I think, a sense that our democracy was really important, and it was an important way of 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 ensuring world peace. That's what I think is the core of the fray right now. What have these done yeah. to to teaching <laughs> and to our to our to our kids? Um when, it's it's nothing good for sure. But 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 how how terrible do you think these things have been? Because in the in the overall scheme, they've not had them for very long. No. So they've had them for long enough for I for I think us to be able to make a, a few general observations about about their about their impact. 
So we have a lot of data about this too, but let me just go back to common sense. And unfortunately, I would say that COVID exacerbated all of that because um, when people are alone, they their friends become their devices as opposed to talking to other human beings and being with other human beings. When you have to be with other human beings, you start learning how to be with other human beings. When you have to be with, when you're with your devices, um, you don't learn those skills. Those relationship skills are really important. But I think there's three things. And teachers tell me this all the time. When kids are focused on this and they're looking at their device, they're not looking at you. They don't have the kind of social skills to engage with other human beings. That is a big problem. Number two, the algorithms are huge problems. Profit making has made kids feel bad about themselves. Think about what TikTok and Instagram and others have done in terms of, you know, if, if, if a kid doesn't feel good about herself and then constantly is getting messages about how somebody else is beautiful, but she isn't, it makes her feel really bad about herself. And why, why is that so intractable to fix? Well, notice when TV, radio, TV were the way means of mass communication, there was common sense regulation around them. The absence of the democracy working to create common sense regulation around this new piece of commerce is part of the problem. In Europe, they just fixed it. In California, they have come up with some of the safeguards and the guardrails, but this has to be done throughout America. And I find it quite interesting that some of the biggest people in tech do not let their kids use these devices. They understand we have to deal as human beings with each other and critical thinking requires us to actually think. Conflict resolution requires us to be together and work things out and bridge differences as human beings. Are there people who are trying to reimagine what 21st century education looks like from the physical plant to the classroom experience to the skills necessary to be a world-class teacher and to apply it in a world of chat GTP, GPT-4 and, and all the rest that's, that's yes. coming? That, that the teachers and the teachers union are open to the type of changes and flexibility and dynamism that that, that that world requires. Yes, but what happens is in education, look, education is based, so, so number one, frankly, that is what my speech at the National Press Club was really about, the solutions. You know, you have to tell the stories about what's going on right now with the culture wars. But the solutions are frankly what I am most interested in. How do we not just overcome learning loss? How do we not just overcome the sadness, the depression, the disaffection that kids have right now that you know has been exacerbated 
uh, because of COVID. But what I think in this age, particularly in this age of chat GPT and, um, and AI, and, you know, we're, you know, we believe that we need some guardrails over this, but you're not going to stop this and you shouldn't stop this. Four things we should be doing. Two really important policy things. Number one is you have to wrap services around schools so that we are meeting kids emotionally, socially, and academically. So kids and their families are not only ready to learn, but you create a sense of community. Number two, right to your point, experiential learning. This is, I think when we see the, um, things like what is going on right now in career tech ed, where 94% of kids who are in these programs graduate from high school, 70% of them go to college. The, the economics of the country are changing hugely between climate issues, um, uh, the um, uh, chips, um, healthcare. And so if we can align in high school um, some workforce development strategies, and a lot of this is a combination of using your hands, sorry, I speak with my hands, and using your brain. and But working by doing, learning by doing, it's something that kids love, and it's something that we should be doing instead of teaching by test. We should be teaching by application. So I call that experiential learning. And we should be doing that, you know, it's what robotics teachers do. It's what I did as a debate teacher. And because the application of knowledge and the, the critical thinking, this is gonna become the currency of today and tomorrow. And so that's what we need to start doing, developing that muscle with kids from elementary school on. And that's what a, I talked about. That's what I talked about last uh, Tuesday, the 28th. And, and there is a, and there's an aspect to this that is very much the recognition that you're gonna spend money throughout this individual's life and your your chance to spend the least right on that person in total is for there to be as early an intervention as possible absolutely i mean uh, think on about a wide range of fronts look, cost only goes up it's all it's why in some ways the red flag laws um or the emergency orders of protection which you know used to be something that people all agreed to but now you know the 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 gun lobby is trying to um fight these things again but we have to meet kids where they are and if you see some issue that issue if you don't do an intervention for most people that issue just gets worse and sadness and depression are, are, are ex I mean, we have to acknowledge that uh, with that isolation hurt kids and hurt families. We, we, none of us, we, we never in America, in, in, in the modern world dealt with a pandemic that we just dealt with. And, and instead of pretending it didn't exist or this is all about, you know, masks and vaccines. We gotta actually make sure that our kids are okay. And, and that's and and that's why I'm very focused on how do we address the mental health issues. 
when you see a statistic that 45% of kids who are LGBTQ have considered suicide, when you see statistics about girls considering suicide, when you see statistics about black kids considering suicide, this is a, an SOS, this is a five alarm or 10 alarm fire. We have to do something. I don't know a better way of doing it than trying to array these services around a school community. When you talk to teachers, how many of them are afraid? <laughs> you know, after Uvalde, you had people who were very afraid, but more, they're frustrated. They're frustrated that they can't teach. They're frustrated that we still have teach to the test, teach to the test, data about teach to the test, rather than meeting children's needs. The, 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 I hear two things from teachers, and, and look, I'm around the country all the time. I talk to teachers all the time. They direct message me on Twitter all the time. And, and I'm talking to our leaders all the time. When I hear is they want to teach, they want kids to learn. They're some of the most amazing people on earth and they want the tools to be able to do it. And they want the obstacles taken away. I was arguing with my parents and a couple of their peers late in their late seventies. Um, and I said to them that I think the biggest difference between being a parent, their generation and mine is that really didn't occur to anybody in their generation that when they dropped their kids off at school on any given day, they were going to be blown away by somebody right. carrying an AR-15. And I think that across uh, the country, all boundaries, geographies, politics, you have a generation of kids, well, now two generations of kids um, that have grown up uh, believing that, you know, on any day that could happen in my school exactly. and a generation of parents who in the back of their mind, when they drop their kids off in the morning, uh, have that what if question. And when they get them at the end of the day, right, have that, thank God, not, not, not today right. issue. What do you want to Look, say to those to those people? And then how do you think about talking to those parents, which is every parent, really, outside of the constructs of all the stupidity of our political labels, just commonsensically about how to end this madness, which which seems which seems like in this moment, um just just something that we are resigned and fated to live with, uh, like the lightning in the rain. And that's that's just not the case, and it shouldn't be. So I will, I reject the proposition that we just have to live with this. I will fight every single day to change this. And, you know, and we are, you know, maybe it's because um, my members um, were the teachers in Sandy Hook. Maybe it's because my members were the teachers in Parkland. Um, maybe it's because my member who died in St. Louis um, with that shooter. Um, I just, I, I don't abide by 
giving up in this arena, even though I know it's hard. And I think that action, Steve, acting together to try to solve a problem. And when I say acting, you know, a rally, a demonstration, writing to your politicians, you know, trying to negotiate something. Acting is an antidote to apathy. Acting is an antidote to autocracy. Um, just like apathy is the tool of autocracy, acting is an antidote to them, and particularly acting in community with others. So and maybe it's because I'm a union activist or I'm a, you know, but but I do believe that action is the is a really important feature of hope. And you know, I think that we I think that 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 what I would say to parents, which is what I say to educators, is that we together, ground up, can make a difference in in the way in which people treat our children, and that our children should not be pawns in a culture war, and and that. That's why I have gotten to now that I think the most important thing we could do right now is have a ban on weapons of war in terms of, of, of citizens. And it was interesting, Steve, that I said this um, in this speech I gave on, again, on, on the 28th and the um, gun lobby and the extremists, and I'm getting this every single day, they're like, Weingarten called for the forfeiture of our guns. I mean, that's the disinformation. No, I don't think every citizen, I think we should ban weapons of war on the streets and in our schools. I think kids' lives are more important than AR-15s. And, and so, but you see the disinformation, you see that she's taking away the freedom. So it's important for us together to actually acknowledge that gun violence is the biggest cause, the highest cause, the, the single biggest cause of death in children. And we together as a nation, if this nation could win World War II, if this nation could be the richest nation in the world, if this nation could invent all sorts of different things, we can create a way to keep our kids safe. But it is gonna be working together, figuring out the leverage, doing things sometimes on a state basis, and then electing people who have the courage of their convictions to do this work and to make safety and our communities more important than having an assault rifle that can kill people. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much today for taking Thank the time. Thank you. Thank you.